This is the story of a relationship which goes sour. The key question is, is there evidence to suggest it went so sour there might be a motive for murder? Especially when the consequences of being found guilty would send the perpetrator to the gallows. The charge against the prisoner is murder and the punishment of murder is death. And that simple statement is sufficient to suggest to us the awful solemnity of the occasion which brings you and me face to face. This is Inside Forensic Science, the case of Madeline Smith, a podcast from the Leverhulme Research Centre for Forensic Science at the University of Dundee. And the last letters, the last exchanges, all point one way, and that is that the person who might have been responsible was in fact Madeline Smith. Might or might not. As a quick recap, if you're only just coming to this series, Madeline Smith was a Glasgow socialite who was on trial in Edinburgh in the summer of 1857. She was charged with administering arsenic or other poison to her lover, Pierre-Emile Langelier, with the intention of murdering him on two separate occasions in February 1857, and she was charged with then murdering him in March of the same year by giving him poison. In this third episode, we're going to step away from the forensic science temporarily to do a bit of scene setting and storytelling, because we need to understand the context to the crime that we're looking at. We need a framework for the forensic evidence to sit within. Context absolutely comes into the analysis of evidence, and it comes into, not well, not so much the analysis, but the interpretation of what the results mean. Professor Neve McDade is director of the Leverhulme Research Centre for Forensic Science at the University of Dundee. So our job as scientists is to, as I said, from a crime scene, starting at a crime scene, is to identify items that might have particular relevance for a case as alleged. We retrieve that information, those items, recover them in an appropriate way, bring them back to our laboratories for testing, and then do the analytical tests that we that we would perform. From there, so then we get a set of data, and the data is the data. Is it arsenic, is it not? Is it a fountain pen or is it not? So that data then needs to be put into the context of the framework of the case. So the, the backstory, the information that is known and provided through the investigation with regard to the circumstances of the particular case or incident. Equally, it's important to contextualise it to the time. Um, and the again, if you think about the, the um, effect that this case would have had on Glaswegian society at that time, there would be a lot of pressure from um, society and, and, and the, the, the various aspects of Glaswegian society to find out what happened, to understand the story. And the story itself comes with scandal associated with it because of this inter-class sort of affair that was going on. And so there would be a a lot of interest in it. There would be intense interest from the the media of the day and and so on, and lots of discussion and gossip and, and that sort of thing proliferating surrounding the case. And all of that can lead to pressure being put on to the investigators to 
produce an answer, to speak to the media, to speak to the press and whoever it might be. And sometimes that sort of pressure can mean that things have to be done perhaps less meticulously than they would have been done if it wasn't such a high profile case. Or con conversely, to be done in a more meticulous way because it is such a high profile case. And so it, it's, it's very much around looking at what the external environment and the influences that that environment may have had on the way in which the police in particular and law enforcement investigated this. But equally, it may have impacted upon how people told their stories, how people talked about uh, those who were the witnesses, how people talked about what uh, they had witnessed saw occurring and so on. So what were the pressures surrounding this case? What was the all-important backstory which could help the interpretation of any forensic evidence? The teenage Madeleine Smith had fallen in love with a boy from the wrong side of the tracks. Pierre-Emile Langelier was older than her and significantly lower in class and wealth. They met in the spring of 1855 and by the summer they were smitten and secretly engaged to be married. In the tradition of some of the greatest love stories, Romeo and Juliet, Heathcliff and Catherine, Angel and Buffy, their love was frowned on by the society they lived in, especially Madeline's own family. My papa will not give his consent, she wrote to Emile. I've given my word of honour, I will have no more communication with you. I do not think he understands the warm love of young people. He has forgotten all his youthful passions. Madeline's own youthful passions meant she continued the affair in secret, writing letter after letter to her lover, documenting their relationship in great detail. I long for the time when we shall be united, never more to part. I long for it every day. I would give the world to be with you. Yes, my love, to be near you, to live with you. Time, I hope, will pass quickly when we shall be one, sweet dear love. Those letters became pivotal to the case against Madeline Smith. We talk in detail about forensic letter analysis in episode two, and it's fascinating stuff, so head back and listen if you haven't heard it yet. Emile's letters didn't survive. Most likely they were burned by either Madeline or Emile. But Madeline's did, and according to the prosecution, contained the motive for his murder. Beloved, if we did wrong last night, it was in the excitement of our love. Yes, beloved, I did truly love you with my soul. I was happy. It was a pleasure to be with you. Early in June 1856, Madeline and Emile consummated their relationship, and she wrote about it in detail. She even said she found it a pleasurable experience. Over 160 years later, the idea of two consenting lovers writing to each other about their sexual relations seems pretty tame. But this was Victorian Scotland, where keeping up appearances mattered, even if the reality behind closed doors was very different. Let's talk about sex. <laughs> Eleanor Gordon is an author on Madeleine Smith and affiliate professor in the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Glasgow. How was sex viewed in, in Madeleine's Scotland at that time? At that class level? Um, well, again, I think the, the Victorians are misunderstood 
uh, with regard to that. They're often portrayed as uh, sexually repressed, and there's all these stories about you know having to cover up tables that have got legs and stuff like that. But it really isn't the case. They had a refinement of expression and language. Uh, so they wouldn't really, in fact, I don't think they would talk about sex. They wouldn't refer to that. And they wouldn't really discuss it publicly. But there was also a belief that sex within the marital bed was, was fine and should be enjoyed by both partners. Now, just like in any time, there would be people that had different beliefs about that uh, and regarded sex as dirty or thought that women uh, should uh, hold fast and think of England. But generally, th there were different views, certainly, but medical views, in fact, one medical view felt that uh, women could only conceive if they had orgasm. So it wasn't such a sexually repressed view as we thought, but the proviso is that it has to take place within the marital bed. On the 4th of July, 1857, Madeline sat in the dock in Court 3 and listened while an elderly clerk of the court read out her letters. Darling Emile, did I seem cold to you last night? Darling, I love you. Yes, my own Emile, love you with my heart and soul. Am I not your wife? Yes, I am. The Times reported the prisoner scarcely maintained her jaunty, indifferent air during today's proceedings, but appeared to feel the exposure which her letters made. I bet she did. I've tried to imagine myself into Madeline's shoes on that day and how excruciating that must have been for her. I guess the modern-day equivalent would be to sit and have sex tapes played in public. Some of the letters or portions of them were considered so obscene they were excluded by the three judges. For every echelon of Victorian society, this was sensational stuff. You had newspapers in Europe and in America uh, running the story. So it, it wasn't just in Scotland and it wasn't just in Britain, but it was pretty worldwide, you know, because um, the, the letters are so frank. I swear to you that no man shall ever love me but you. Emile, I dote in you. I adore you with my heart and soul. And discuss you. things which in that class normally aren't discussed. And of course, when it came to the trial, I mean, people flocked. It ended in a, in a huge, or what unfolded to be a huge scandal um, around her, her virtue as a woman back in those days. It was the, the, the scandalous case of its era um, and that has, I think, um, brought attention to it and maintained a focus of attention on it across the, across the years. For Donald Finlay KC, it's not just about what took place or when, but where the case was heard. It's all about the context, um, because you have to see it against the background of Victorian actual and pretended morality. Um, and also Edinburgh, as opposed to Glasgow itself, which is kind of much more relaxed about these things and probably not quite so fussy. But in Edinburgh, she was tried by an Edinburgh jury, which would be, in Scottish terms, the, the epitome of Victorian middle-class morality. 
Context is everything for this case. The Victorian bourgeoisie were usually portrayed as very respectable and, you know, in, the, in contrast to the working classes, you know, were seen as largely immoral. And actually, well, I was going to say actually there's quite a lot of evidence to suggest that is the, the case, because if you look at things like illegitimacy and prenuptial uh, conceptions, you know, people that were women that were pregnant when they married, the vast majority are amongst the working class. So although that was quite common amongst the working class to have sex before marriage, uh, provided it ended up in marriage, that was a proviso, uh, it was not thought of as the case amongst uh, the bourgeoisie, and it wasn't according to these kind of statistics. So what you see is people flocking to hear uh, what they hope, you know, is, is, is going to be uh, all sorts of juicy uh, information about what's, ha what's happening um, underneath the cloak of respectability. You know. Madeline writing about enjoying sex with a meal, while certainly saucy by the standards of the day, isn't exactly motive for murder, but we'll come back to that point shortly. I can't help wondering, though, what impact all this scandal has on the case. Is evidence, like Madeline's letters, which are emotive, sensational, and being presented within a courtroom in Victorian Edinburgh, going to be more persuasive in some way with the jury? Neve McDade again. It's a really good question, and it's a really difficult one to answer. Um, part of the job of a scientist, without doubt, is to, when they get into the courtroom, is to be able to communicate our evidence in a way that is factually correct, obviously, that is understandable to members of the public. So the importance of being able to explain what we did, what we found and what it means within that case context. Um, in a way that is understandable to people who are not scientifically trained is really important. And that might include explaining to them some quite complex scientific methodologies or ways in which we do our work, um, but finding the words to, if it's important in the case, to explain what those tests do, how they work and what information they will provide, but also what their limitations are. And then once you've, once you've done that, to talk about the findings that you um, you got when you did the analysis, and then what it means within explaining um, how you uh, cite that or put that into the context of the alleged offences, if you like. So critical is being able to communicate to the jury. And you should be able to do that across all evidence types, irrespective of how um, much they might be in the media or how underpinned they are with respect to objective versus subjective evidence. The most important job of the of the witness, um, the expert witness within the, the trial is to be able to do that explanation because it's not for us to determine the guilt or otherwise of the individual in the dock. That's the job of the jury. And they need to be able to understand the evidence that's presented to them, not just simply accept it because it sounds good but understand what it actually means and what value it brings within the wider context of everything they hear, which isn't just, of course, the scientific evidence. They also hear all the eyewitness testimony and all of the other material that's presented. That must be quite difficult because you, you can't turn around to your jury and say, have you got that? Exactly. Anyone yes. put the hand up? It's, like, it's not like at school where you say, so anyone yeah. put the hand up if they haven't got it? And you're absolutely right. And, it, and it's, it is one of the 
the I think the real challenges that the experts have, um, because court is a very formalised process. Um, we're we're in Scotland standing in a witness box, and we're under oath. We're being asked direct questions by the the lawyers, the prosecution and the defence, and we are only really enabled to answer those questions, not the ones in our minds that we're really asking the, the, the lawyers to ask us because it enables us to explain things slightly better. So it's, it's, it's quite a challenging position for the scientists to be in. Um, but we have to do our best to speak to the evidence and speak about what the evidence means in a way that somebody can understand it, because otherwise we're not actually doing our job correctly. We do all of the scientific testing and get to the point of giving evidence in court. And then if we can't explain it so that somebody who actually has the the, the um, responsibility of making the decision about guilt or otherwise, if we can't explain what we did and what it means to them to enable them to make that decision, then we're not really fulfilling our full role within the court arena, at least. And Trials are about narratives, that are about stories, that are about trying to use the scientific findings. Our part of it is about using the scientific findings to try to bring alive uh, an event that happened in the past. So um, what we find at crime scenes, what we determine from our analysis, how we interpret that within the context of the case is all about bringing a story of an event that happened to life from the scientific perspective. And the story here, that any scientific evidence needs to bring to life, is what were the circumstances of Emile's death? And is there any evidence which firmly points to Madeline as being responsible? You'll notice if you go through Madeline's letters to Emile, and we've put a link to them in the series notes, Madeline often refers to Emile as her husband. I asked Eleanor Gordon if that was connected to the fact that the relationship had been consummated. Probably, because as you, uh, as you may be aware, in Scotland there was such a thing as irregular marriage. There was three different forms of irregular marriage, and one of them was that you know, a promise of future marriage followed by sexual congruence or copulation. And I suspect that's why they referred to each other as my dear husband, my dear wife, etc., uh, they probably did think of themselves as married. Tuesday, two o'clock. My own darling husband, I am afraid I may be too late to write to you this evening. So, as all are out, I shall do it now, my sweet one. And if he did promise to marry, and we know that the intention was supposed, certainly it was his serious intention to marry, whether it was ever her serious intention, probably at the beginning it was actually. I did not expect the pleasure of seeing you last evening, of being fondled by you, dear, dear Emile. But I trust ere long to have a long, long interview with you, sweet one of my soul, my love, my all, my own best beloved. Whatever her original intentions, Madeline's affections start to cool. I mean, he was incredibly controlling and uh, jealous and, you know, she didn't want her social life restricted. And she probably came to realise that if she was going to be with him, they would have to run away and get married. And she didn't want to live in poverty either. And Minnock was introduced that was quite deliberate, you know, sort of pointing her in the direction of 
of the minute. But I'm not surprised she went off them. Um, he was uh, quite an unpleasant individual. Uh, she has had enough of him, that's fair enough. He is perhaps not too pleased about it, but that's the way it goes. So, to this point in time, it's no big deal. Ah, but, and the ah, but, of course, are the letters. And the letters are written by someone who should not have written them because she is no longer that which would be acceptable to many suitors, having gone cavorting around the place. Well, she's no longer a virgin for a start, uh, and that in Victorian society was not something to admit terribly readily. Uh, Emil is no longer suitable, Billy Minich is. What view is Billy Minich, with his money, going to take of Madeline, who no doubt didn't explain that she had been cavorting around the potting shed with this dubious foreigner? Um, and if that gets out, then it's not just Billy Minich that may disappear, but other potential suitors, because Glasgow's a village at this time, bear in mind. It's not a huge city, it's Glasgow's a village. So she is now in, in, in difficulty and the shame and the family and what would their attitude be? So there are all these things pressing in on this young woman. I felt truly astonished to have my last letter returned to me, but it will be the last you shall have an opportunity of returning to me. When you are not pleased with the letters I send you, then our correspondence shall be at an end. And as there is coolness on both sides, our engagement had better be broken. This may astonish you, but you have more than once returned me my letters, and my mind was made up that I should not stand the same thing again. And you also annoyed me much on Saturday by your conduct in coming so near me. Altogether, I think, owing to coolness and indifference, nothing else, that we had better for the future consider ourselves as strangers. I trust to your honour as a gentleman that you will not reveal anything that may have passed between us. I shall feel obliged by your bringing me my letters and likeness on Thursday evening at seven. On Friday night, I shall send you all your letters. I'm Thomas Fleming Kennedy, cashier at Huggins in Co Glasgow. I knew Angeli uh, for about four years and a half, during which he was in Huggins in Co's employment. I was intimately acquainted with him. The conversation took place in my room in the warehouse. Uh, Longelier came to me between 10 and 11 a.m. crying. He said he'd received a letter from Miss Smith that morning asking back her letters and wishing the correspondence to cease. He said that a, a coolness had arisen. I said you ought to give up the letters and be done with it. And I remarked that the lady was not worthy of him. He said he wouldn't give up the letters. He said so distinctly, determinedly. He said he was determined to keep them. But he threatened at the same time to show them to her father. I told him he was very foolish and it'd be much better to give them up. He said, no, I won't. She shall never marry another man so long as I live. He also said, Tom, it's an infatuation. She'll be the death of me. He was exceedingly excited during the whole time. I heard him say on one occasion, I don't recollect when, I wish I was six feet under the ground. And Emil just will not give her back the letters. Emil... No one can know the intense agony of mind I have suffered last night and today. Emil, my father's wrath would kill me. 
you little know his temper. Emil, for the love you once had for me, do not denounce me to my papa. Emil, if, if he should read my letters to you, he will put me from him. He, he will hate me as a guilty wretch. Oh, she would be beside herself. I mean, we see that from her letters. She's okay. She's she's fairly melodramatic anyway, and she is a, a sort of she she indulges herself in melodrama. But she's clearly, when she writes him, so please, and for heaven's sake, oh, please, my father will throw me out of the house. Please, I beg of you. That's all definitely true. I mean, she was. She was driven mad by the thought that uh, he might give the letters to her father. I loved you, and I wrote to you in my first ardent love. It was with my deepest love I loved you. It was for your love I adored you. I put on paper what I should not. I was free because I loved you with my heart. If he or any other one saw those fond letters to you, what would not be said of me? On my bended knees I write you and I ask you as you hope for mercy at the judgment day, do not inform on me. Do not make me a public shame. And I suppose that's also an insight into his character. He was a social climber and you know he was determined to marry her, uh, come what may, and you know if it, if it meant disgracing her. Fine. And even when she would suggest in the early days, when she probably was pretty taken with him, you know, maybe we should run away. He never wanted to do that. Of course, he didn't want to do it because they would be poor. Emil, my life has been one of bitter disappointment. You and you only can make the rest of my life peaceful. My own conscience will be a punishment that I shall carry to my grave. I have deceived the best of men. You may forgive me, but God never will. For God's love, forgive me and betray me not for the love you once had to me. Do not bring down my father's wrath on me. It will kill my mother, who is not well. It will forever cause me bitter unhappiness. I am humble before you and crave your mercy. You can give me forgiveness and you... Only you can make me happy for the rest of my life. I would not ask you to love me or ever make me your wife. I am too guilty for that. I have deceived and told you too many falsehoods and for you ever to respect me. But, oh, will you not keep my secret from the world? Oh, will you not for Christ's sake denounce me? I shall be undone. What would have been the response in terms of, uh, from her family maybe, but also from wider society, if the letters had come out, um, I'm talking about before the trial, of course they did come out eventually anyway, but what, what would the likely consequences have, have been of her father finding out that she was in a sexual relationship with Longelier? Hmm. Difficult to speculate. I mean, as I've said, I... The, the image that we have of her father from her letters is that he was quite indulgent. He certainly wouldn't be pleased, that's, that's the case. They might have sent her away, you know, to get... Well, they would probably have sent her away. I mean, what they did do, for example, was introduce Minach into the scene, you know, who is a, a much more acceptable, acceptable alternative to L'Angelier. He worked in the same 
the same firm. So, I mean, it must have happened before. Madeline isn't unique, can't be unique, you know, and maybe, you know, people's letters weren't found before, but I suspect if we looked at, um, you know, the registers of birth and marriages, we might find a few middle-class women who had the, the, the baby about eight months after, after marriage or whatever. Uh, so it's it's hard it's hard to say. I mean, he wouldn't have cut her throat or his. You know, um, they would have dealt with probably sending her away. So what is she going to do? Um, how does she get the letters? And this is where there is a difficulty because if you bump off a meal, that doesn't mean to say you're going to get the letters back. Uh, and that has always intrigued me. Uh, that. that it, it may be the, the, the court of last resort is just to remove the impediment altogether if you can, but I wasn't going to get the letters back. But if that's the course that she chose, well, there was a motive of sorts. And the last letters, the last exchanges, and the last letters, of course, that is found, the, one, the, the ones that feature, all point one way, and that is that the person who might have been responsible for the poisoning was in fact Madeline Smith. The reason being that she just wanted to get rid of this nuisance. Now that's, that's the motive. The Crown would then have to prove opportunity and that was where the Crown had a problem because they could perhaps prove an intent to murder but could they actually prove that the final dose, if there was a final dose, was supplied by Madeline? But this was Victorian society, and they did not want to acknowledge, I'm sure, that a young woman of once virtue and uh, suitable gentility could actually behave in such a way, because that would be a reflection on Victorian society. In the next episode of Inside Forensic Science, the case of Madeline Smith, we'll turn back to the evidence and hear from our forensic pathologist, Dr Richard Shepherd, who throws the cause of Emil's death, and consequently the case against Madeline, into doubt. Perhaps Emil wasn't poisoned after all. He had exhibited evidence of profuse, watery, diarrhoea, which is one of the features uh, of cholera. Of course, it's also one of the features of arsenic poisoning. In episode three of Inside Forensic Science, the case of Madeline Smith, the actors were Kira Lucchese, David Bryce and Alan Richardson. The experts were Professor Neve McDade, Donald Finlay-Casey and Professor Eleanor Gordon. The series story consultants are Heather Duran and Clara Morris. The series is written and presented by me, Penny Stewart. Inside Forensic Science is produced by Adventurous Audio Limited for the Leverhulme Research Centre for Forensic Science at the University of Dundee and is funded by the Leverhulme Trust. <laughs>